going to read a, a lengthy passage of Scripture today, and I will kind of walk back and forth through that over uh, our message, or at least a, a significant portion of that. But continuing on in Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 9, let's jump, let's jump all the way to verse 9. It says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached concerning or he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I may lay hands on. And my notes just skipped. Sorry about that. Did, anybody, did I tell anybody I was tired today? I don't know if that's going to explain what's going on with me today, but I'm going to actually I'm going to go to a different set of notes so it doesn't do that again. Even verse 13 again, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Simon had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said will come to pass. I want to preach to you for just a little bit from this title, Initial Evidence of the New Birth. Initial Evidence of the New Birth. There was a time when I wanted to be a lawyer, and it could be that I wanted to be a lawyer because lawyers typically make make decent money. Depends on what kind of law you practice and and where you practice, And, and so it could be that I was just looking at the money, but it could also be that I just like to argue. And that, you know, I figured lawyers get to argue, and they get paid to argue. They get paid to argue for a living. And when I was, when I was a child growing up, I could argue with a signpost. It didn't matter. I always won those arguments. But I, I, could, I could argue with, with just about anything, and I did it for fun. And if there was no good argument going, I would just come up with, a, with one just because it was just part of my... Uh, unsaved temperament, maybe. And then, of course, even after I was saved, I still like to argue. Nothing like a good argument. Anybody else like to argue and just debate? Anybody else? You can raise your hand. Just, okay, just me. That's fine. 
I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. But, but as, because I, I wanted to be a lawyer, I like legal things. Now, the idea of practicing corporate law or something like that wasn't really that appealing, except they made decent money, even though they would work 80 to 100 hours a week. But, but when I would think about being a lawyer and, of course, arguing, I, I would think about it in terms of courtroom cases. Now, now most lawyers never even see a courtroom. Most, most lawyers and most cases never go that far. They don't, they don't go to trial. But I, I just always envisioned that if I was going to be a lawyer, that I would be arguing in court before uh, a jury and before the judge and before a great cloud of witnesses there in the court. And I would just lay out my argument and it would be so good. And so I, I read books on and, and novels about the law or about lawyers and would, would see shows and various things about that. And, and, and if you know anything about the law you know this, that in order to prove your case, whether it's to prove someone is guilty or to prove someone is innocent, and it's a little bit different when you're trying to prove that they're innocent than it is they're guilty, but, but especially when they're guilty and you're trying to prove that, that you have to present evidence. It can't be that you just know somebody's guilty. It can't be that you just have a strong suspicion that somebody did something wrong and and, you're, and because you think that that happened, then they're going to take your word for it. But you actually have to have evidence. Have you ever been in a situation where you knew something to be true and you just couldn't prove it? Anybody ever been there? That you knew who really broke that glass or who stole the last cookie out of the cookie jar. But the crumbs didn't lead to their room. And you couldn't prove it, but you knew who did it. Well, there's a lot of times when we, we know things and we assume things to be true, but because we can't prove it, then we just have to let it go. And, and it's the same way in a court of law is that without proof, without evidence, you can't prove that someone is guilty or something is true just because you suspect that it is or you know that it is. In my title, you see that I, I use that word evidence and I, I preface the word evidence with initial because there is a long-term evidence that I, rec- uh, I referenced last week and it's called the fruit of the Spirit and you can see a, a long-term evidence in people's lives that they are following Jesus, that they, their, their lifestyle and, and the way in which they interact with people, their attitudes, their motives, those things will change over time as people are following Jesus. As Paul said, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. It will change over time as you commit to following Jesus Christ and you get in the Word and you you spend time in prayer that you will have a transformation that takes place as your mind is renewed and you're different than the world. But once again, that's not an overnight, that's not an instantaneous process. That nobody, I said this a few weeks ago, nobody is ever saved and immediately they're a mature Christian. But the question, if they're not a mature Christian and and you haven't seen the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, how do you know if they're really a Christian? Our text addresses that question today. And I'm going to delve into that, but let me first give you a definition of initial 
The word initial, of course, means to exist or occur at the beginning. Something that takes place at the beginning. And while initial is not a biblical word, it is a biblical principle as it relates to the new birth. You've never, well if you've ever seen a birth, you've ever been around a birth, you don't have to wait three or four years to figure out if a child has been born. You know right away. And what I would tell you is that when it comes to being born again, to being having and experiencing this new birth that Jesus talked about in John 3, you can know right away. Because you don't have to wait for a lengthy period of time. So I would tell you that there is an initial evidence of the new birth. That God does not require us to have blind faith, but He proves Himself. That God is is a God who offers proof of what He has said is true. The Scripture is full of those examples. Moses at the burning bush said, how do I know you're going to be with me? And what God does not do is say, well, I said I'm going to be with you, so just trust me. Oh, but how do I know? I'm getting ready to go into Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I'm going to confront him. How do I know? Throw your rod down. And he throws his rod down and it turns into a serpent. And he tells him to pick it back up and it turns into a rod. God proves his power. And when God's really upset with Moses as he's arguing about it, stick your hand inside your, your robe. And he does and he pulls it out and it's leprous. I'm showing you, Moses, that I'm, t- I'm going to be with you. I'm showing you that I have power, so stick it back in there. And he pulls it out and it's back to its normal state. God proves himself to the prophets of old, and to his people over and over again. There is little doubt in my mind that he would prove himself to us today. Because of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when he has proved himself in the past, he proves himself in the present. Gideon, Gideon is a judge of Israel that God uses to deliver Israel from captivity and bondage and oppression and we get that the word or the concept of fleecing the Lord from Gideon as the angel of the Lord comes and gives Gideon a word and says this is what I'm calling you to do this is what God is calling you to do this is what you're supposed to do and Gideon's question well how do I know and God does not say to him well just know because I told you He doesn't just leave it up to Gideon to say, all right, he told me. Now, I would tell you that he should. Gideon should believe just because God said it. So what Gideon does is not an act of faith, but he's not blindly jumping in with faith, and God doesn't say, I'm not proving myself to you. I'm the God of the universe. I don't have to do that. You just do what I say. Oh, but Gideon puts a fleece out and says, Lord, if if you're really telling me to do this, Let there be dew everywhere but on this fleece. And a fleece, of course, the animal skin with the hair. And he said, let there be dew everywhere in the morning but on this fleece. And he goes out there and the fleece is dry and everything else is wet. And Gideon still doesn't have enough proof. He says, all right, God, let's do it the other way. Let everything be dry and this be wet. And God doesn't 
say, I'm not doing it again. I don't prove myself once. No, but God proves himself yet again. And Jesus, after he has resurrected, and he shows himself to the ten. Of course, Judas has killed himself after betraying Jesus. And, and Thomas is not present with the other apostles or disciples when Jesus shows up. And Thomas says, unless I see the nail prints in his hands and the spear in his side, I will not believe. Jesus doesn't say, well, too bad for you. But Jesus shows up in their midst as he walks through the wall. He shows up in their midst and they say, hey, Thomas, come and feel the nail prints. Come and touch the spear hole in my side. And he proves himself to Thomas. We serve a God who, while he would desire and he would want us to have faith, that he would not have to prove himself over and over again, but we do serve a God who does prove himself. And I would tell you that when it comes to the new birth, God is no different. He is not telling us, just believe that it's happened. Just hope that what you have been told is true, but God proves himself with initial evidence when we are born again. Now, the context of Acts chapter 8 is this, the Holy Ghost has, the Holy Spirit has fallen in Jerusalem and Jesus had already told them before that happened, but you will receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And up until Acts chapter 8, they had been relegated to Jerusalem and Judea. And now, Stephen, after his death, Philip, Another one of the the people that we see show up in Acts chapter 6, that Philip is now going to the city of Samaria and he preaches the word. Verse 4 says that those who were persecuted were scattered about and went everywhere preaching the word. And Philip went to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And this is what it says, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. That Philip comes into Samaria preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He preaches and that blueprint that we see in the book of Acts where the gospel is proclaimed. Gospels preached and then signs and miracles and wonders take place after that to prove that the gospel is true. Now just imagine when I'm talking about this proving idea that you show up to people who have never heard about Jesus. And they've got a lot of sick people. And you're like, hey, God is a healer. Now, he's not going to heal anybody. Bob, just trust me that he's a healer. God doesn't do that. When you preach that God is a healer, and God is a deliverer, and God is is your Savior, and when you preach that he will cast out demons, that he is greater than any demons, guess what happens? Demons are cast out, and people are healed. 
the lame walk and the paralyzed are able to, to walk and the blind see and deaf ears are unstopped. It is the pattern of the, the book of Acts and we see that here. And when that happens, the people believe what Philip has preached to them concerning the kingdom of God. They believe the message about Jesus. And even, they add baptism to their belief. They don't just say they believe, but they take the step of baptism and they're baptized. So from that setting, I want to quickly present to you five truths about the new birth. The first is this, is that believing doesn't equal receiving the Holy Spirit. Believing doesn't equal receiving the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. It is clear. In fact, it couldn't be any more clear. They believed on Jesus. They received the word of God that Philip preached, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit. I would tell you that most conservative Christians... And by that I mean Christians who actually believe the Bible. That they attempt to follow the Scriptures. That they don't view the Scripture as just a book of fairy tales and, and, and stories with good morals that they can learn. Now I would tell you that that is growing. That idea that the Bible is not really the Word of God and the Bible is not really true and, and that these are just stories to tell us about some good truth that we should live. Not much different than Aesop's fables or other ancient writings. Once upon a time, that was just limited to what would be called mainline Christian denominations in the last hundred years. I just read a survey, though, that said this, that those who have been conservative Christians who have believed the Bible are beginning to move to that idea. That it's just stories. Didn't really happen. Jonah wasn't really swallowed by a fish. Jesus didn't really raise the dead. Jesus didn't really do these miracles. And in fact, as our culture has moved to what's called uh, a more progressive way, they are called progressives, that has entered into the church. And what has happened is that people in the church have decided that if they're going to reach progressives, they need to change what they believe or change the way in which they present it. But instead of reaching the progressives and creating an own ramp for progressives into true Christianity, what they've done is they've created an exit ramp for people who should believe the Bible who are now becoming progressive in a secular sense. 
So instead of drawing people in, what they're doing is really opening the doors and people are flooding away from following Jesus Christ. Now at the same time, there are other groups that are bringing people in, that they're sticking to the Word of God. But, but I, I would just tell you that the, most people that even in this day that would consider themselves conservative Christians, they believe that when you believe on Jesus... The infilling of the Spirit is an automatic. Because they believe what the Scripture says, that if anyone has not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. They believe that if the Spirit that dwelt in Christ dwells in you, it shall also quicken your mortal body. They hold to those truths. And they say that the moment you believe In Jesus, you receive the Spirit. But our passage would tell us something different. These are people, hundreds, probably thousands of people, who truly believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Who have been told that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And yet, the Holy Spirit has fallen on none of them. They have not yet received the Holy Spirit. And I would tell you that there is nowhere in Scripture that the Bible teaches that the moment you believe on Jesus, you automatically receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit. You can't find one verse in the Bible that would support that. But you can find where people believe and then they have this subsequent experience of being filled with the Spirit, just like our text. Acts 19, and I don't know that we'll get to Acts 19 in our, in our study on the book of Acts, but, but Acts 19, Paul is in Ephesus and he finds some disciples of John the Baptist, but the deal is he doesn't know that they're disciples of John the Baptist. He thinks that they're Christian because they know about, they know some things about Jesus. They've been taught some things about Jesus. And at the end of Acts chapter 18, we we see why that's true. But they don't know everything they need to know about Jesus. And Paul, when he he runs into them in Ephesus, he asks this question, Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Look at your neighbor asking that question. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Now, I I would tell you, as I lay this out in a legal, orderly, lawyerly way, I would tell you that that question would be silly if there's only one answer. What do you mean, Paul? Of course I did. Everybody does. That's not the answer. Their response is this, we've not even heard about the Holy Spirit. We don't even know what you're talking about. We believe in Jesus. We believe He's the Messiah. We don't even know about this Holy Spirit thing. 
It would be analogous to me, and I, and I may have used this in service, I've used it in a lot of Bible studies, but it would be analogous to me asking you if, if you were thrown into a pool of water, well, did you get wet? Well, of course I got wet. That'd be a dumb question. And it would be a dumb question for Paul to ask something that had only one obvious answer. But their answer wasn't what he expected. Because their answer was, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. His next question, this is outside of the scope of this particular point of my message, but his next question was then, well, how then were you baptized? If you didn't receive the Holy Spirit, how were you baptized? The assumption that he makes is that if you believe in Jesus, guess what? You get baptized. That, now, that's, a, that's an illogical answer. Not, not did you get baptized, but how did you get baptized? It's like when Jesus talks to the people in, in the Sermon on the Mount, and he doesn't say, if you pray, pray this way. Like that it's an option, but he says, when you pray. It's not an option, it's just a matter of when you do it. When you do it, do it like this. When you fast, do it like this. Not if you choose to. Not did you get baptized, but how did you get baptized? So I would tell you as I go back to the, the point of the point. That believing doesn't equal receiving the Holy Spirit. And secondly, what I would tell you is this, is that baptism in water doesn't equal receiving the Holy Spirit. They came down from Jerusalem. Peter and John were sent by the apostles at Jerusalem down to Samaria. They prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. These believers in Samaria, they had been baptized in water in the name of Jesus. But as yet, they had been unfilled with the Spirit. Many conservative Christians, and I've defined that already, refer to baptism as believer's baptism. This is to set at odds and to set the opposite of what had been taught for centuries by the Roman Catholic Church is that that everybody just get baptized, whether they're infants or whatever. And, and as the Protestant Reformation kicked into gear, they said that you can't find that idea. There's no infant baptism in the Bible. You can't find that to be true. So only people who believe in Jesus can get baptized. Now you can be a child as long as you understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. So whenever you make that decision and whenever you have that understanding, it's time to get baptized. So these people here in Samaria, they were believers. And then they got baptized. And they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, but the Spirit had not come. It's 11.26, so I'm going to hurry. So a man I met in town, he had been a local church pastor for some 40 years, I believe. Or at least he had been in ministry, full-time ministry for some 40-plus years. I met him after he was no longer the pastor of a local church here in, in Olathe. 
but he was the head chaplain. In fact, he was the one who started the chaplain program at Olathe Health, their medical system. And I volunteered and did some chaplain work with him. And he told me about his theological beliefs, and we have a common friend. In fact, this friend of mine uh, that's part of his same denomination, as it were, is actually, they have relatives that married each other, and, and so we had some common ground, and, and as is my custom, I do as many Bible studies as I can, and so I don't want to say that I suckered him into this Bible study, but he probably wouldn't have just agreed to study the Bible. I mean, he'd been preaching for 40-plus years. I mean, what could I teach him about the Bible? And so I asked him one day, I was like, and, and I, won't, I, won't, I'll just, I won't use his name, but I asked him, I said, hey, I've got this Bible study. Well, let's take a praise break right now. I asked him, I said, I've got the, I told him, I've got this Bible study. I'd like to get your opinion on it. It's a two-day Bible study. And I said, you know, it's like about an hour and 15 minutes for each, each of these parts. I said, but because of your Bible knowledge, I'm just going to give you like a five-minute synopsis of lesson one, and we'll jump into lesson two. And he had already told me. I'd already asked him some questions about what he believes and why he believes and he had told me that he preaches Acts 2.38. Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I was like, cool. But he also told me, as I asked further questions, that his position was this. It's that the moment you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and you come out of the water... You're automatically filled with the Holy Spirit. I've been preaching this for 40 years. So this Bible study that I was doing went through Acts chapter 8. So we're sitting in the cafeteria at the hospital. He's leaning over and we're going through the scripture. And I read, I already knew what was going to happen because I knew where I was going. I didn't have to explain anything, though. I read verse 15 and 16, who had come down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And as he's sitting there, leaning forward, reading the text with me, when I read that verse, I didn't, I didn't even pause, I just kept reading. He leaned back in his seat. And one verse shattered his theology of 40 years. Now the sad part of it is this. He saw the Scripture and there are others that we went to. But he saw the scripture that totally contradicted what he had been preaching for 40 years. He 
And he said to me, man, I got some things to think about. Followed up with him the next week and said, what, what about this comment that you made? He said, well, I must have been in a moment of weakness. <laughs> That's what he told me. Almost 70 years old, been preaching for over 40 years. And he said, well, you definitely know your theology. But he could not bring himself to change what he had preached to line up with the Bible. He couldn't say that I've been telling people stuff that might not really be the way it is. Baptism in water does not automatically equal being filled with the Spirit. So let me hurry. Number three is this, that the absence of external evidence proves the lack of receiving the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to read the verses. I've already read them three or four times. I'm not going to read them again. But just suffice it to say that a clear inference can be made from this passage that the lack of something external, the lack of something that people can see, implies that there is the lack of receiving the Holy Spirit. If that were not true, then how does Philip know they don't have the Spirit? I preached the Gospel. They believe the Gospel. They're baptized in water in the name of Jesus. And Philip says, but they still don't have the Holy Spirit. How does he know? And when Philip sends word to Jerusalem, to the apostles, and he tells them, what is he telling them? that would let the church in Jerusalem know, yep, they don't have the Spirit. Peter and John need to go down to Samaria so they can receive the Spirit. Something is missing. How did they know? Which leads me to the fourth thing, and that is this, that the presence of external evidence proves the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon, this sorcerer, this magician, when he saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Now understand what I'm saying. Simon had seen miracles done by Philip. He had seen the lame walk and he had seen the paralyzed healed and he had seen Jesus do miracles already. He's not impressed with that. Maybe it caused him to believe, but he doesn't say, hey Philip, I'll pay you so you can show me how to do this. But when Peter and John come down and they lay their hands on people and they receive the Spirit, he says, man, I'll give you money for that. I'll pay you to be able to do that. Now you could say, oh, surely there, there didn't have to be some external evidence. 
you could say there doesn't necessarily mean there has to be something going on there. But we already know that he's a swindler, he's a magician, he's fooling the people. Why would he offer to pay money when he could just go lay hands on somebody and say, hey, you just received the Holy Spirit. He doesn't need to offer money. How do Peter and John know that now these people have received the Holy Spirit? Because are Peter and John the only ones who can lay hands on people and they receive the Spirit? If that's the case, we're all in trouble. Because Peter and John, in my slang vernacular, they ain't here. But I would tell you that there's something that took place that Peter and John could see and Philip could see and the Samaritans could see and Simon the sorcerer could see. And he said, I want to be able to do that. The Bible doesn't tell us what that is in this particular case, but it does imply explicitly that something is taking place. Peter and John don't say, we'll come back in four or five years and see how you're living and see if you really received it. They knew in that moment. And lastly, saying you believe and being baptized is not always efficacious. That just means effective. Because verse 13 tells us even Simon himself believed. This magician believed it, after being baptized, he continued with Philip. He was following Philip around, listening to, to Philip's preaching, and he had been baptized just like the other Samaritans in the name of Jesus. And the Bible does say he saw signs and great miracles, and he was amazed, but he didn't, want, he didn't offer to, buy money, to pay money for that. It was just the other. Verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He believed in Jesus. Baptized in the name of Jesus. but in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter, in essence, pronounces his destruction. May your silver perish with you because you think you can buy the gift of God. So repent of your sin and get right. Believing is not enough I realize that we live in a Christian culture that says that that's all you have to do. Just believe certain facts. I said this to a 
former pastor I was talking to about the gospel, it's probably about a month ago now, I said that, that our Christianity here in, in the U.S. has dumbed down things so much that they, they, they're looking for the least common denominator. And I may have told this story. I've told it in a couple of settings. It may have been this setting as well. But I, they, they're looking for the least possible thing to say that everybody's all right and saved. So much so that if you can just spell Jesus, you're good. You've heard of Jesus? Good. All right, you're saved. Unless you think I'm, I'm exaggerating, I've heard things that are pretty close to that. But Jesus contradicts that. John 7, 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture says. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been, yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And I need to hurry, and I don't have time to unpack all of that, but suffice it to say that what Jesus is saying is that the Spirit is going to come, but it's not here now. That the infilling of the Spirit is coming later, but it's not here now. But it doesn't come to just anybody who believes anything about me. But you have to believe on me as the Scripture says. Amen. That it's not enough to just to say, yeah, I've heard of Jesus. It's not enough to say, I believe in Jesus. But, and Jesus doesn't call on people to believe in Him. He calls on people to follow Him. And we do that by emulating his death, burial, and resurrection through repentance, through water baptism in the name of Jesus, and through the infilling of the Holy Spirit as we pattern what we do after him. So let me wrap it up with this. C.S. Lewis said this. As people were making various cases and things about Jesus, especially in the, the 50s and 60s as liberal Christianity was sweeping North America and the globe, that as they were talking about Jesus, many of them began to say things like, well, Jesus isn't really God, he's just, he's just a good man. Jesus isn't really God, he's, he's just a good teacher. Because God wouldn't come down in the form of man. That's crazy talk. It's not really what happened. That's just, these are just stories made up. And so as liberal Christianity was sweeping North America and, and the first world, C.S. Lewis created this argument. He says, if a man or somebody would say that Jesus is a good person, 
And Jesus claims to be God, which He does. That Jesus proclaimed His deity. He said, for those people who say that Jesus is a good man and a good teacher, but He proclaimed to be God, if He's not God, and He knows He's not God, He's a liar. Not many people are going to say a liar is a good man and a good teacher. He says if they say that about him and Jesus proclaimed himself to be God and he really thinks he is, but he's not. He says nobody calls that a good man or a good teacher. We call them a lunatic. We put those people in padded cells. He said, but the only other option is this. He claimed to be God, and he really was, which makes him Lord. It's important what you believe about Jesus. Not just any belief in Jesus will even get you on the right path. I don't have time to walk through the rest of my notes. I've got a a number of other things. But let me do the synopsis this way. The believing doesn't equal receiving the Spirit. Baptism doesn't equal receiving the Spirit. That the absence of external evidence implies or proves the lack of receiving the Spirit. The presence of external evidence proves the receiving of the Spirit. And lastly, that saying you believe in being baptized is not always effective. So what did Jesus say to talk about this new birth? When Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, when he came to Jesus, he came to him at night because he didn't want his fellow Pharisees and Sanhedrin members to see that he was talking to Jesus. And Nicodemus had said to Jesus, truly you come from God because no one can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. Jesus' response in verse 3 wasn't just to go, yep, you're right. But he cut to the heart of the matter. And he answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I've heard a number of people talk about being born again. and When they, they do that, they always leave this passage after verse 3 and go use other things to explain what it means to be born again. Jesus is pretty clear. Born again in verse 3 and in verse 5, born of water and of the Spirit. 
then he spends a lengthy period of time explaining what that spirit baptism is. You must be born again. Let me say this. And, and, and I rest, to be honest with you, I wrestled, I know we're, we're late, but I, I wrestled over this message because, I mean, I, I preached a pretty strong message last week and talking about, specifically about tongues as the sign of the Holy Spirit. And truly, God met us here last week, but it's like doing it two weeks in a row. <laughs> but it's the book of Acts, and that's where we are. I'm not just preaching the same sermon, I'm a whole chapter later. <laughs> Those themes are interwoven all throughout there. But I, what I would tell you is this, is, is there was a time when I, I was in seminary working on my Master of Divinity degree, and, and, and I wrestled with, I wrestled with the exclusiveness of the message that we preach. I wrestled with the fact that I was going to school with people who prayed every day. They talked to people about Jesus and evangelism and they they were doing their best to live godly lives to the extent of their tradition and what they had been taught. And I wrestled a little bit with it. And then in one of my missions classes, I had to read a book. And the author of the book, his name is George Peters, he, he painted this case, this scenario about what it means to preach an exclusive gospel. And he, he painted the, the scenario that there are people in our world, such as those liberal or progressive Christians, that are really more like universalists, where they say ultimately that everybody's just going to be saved. And then on the other end of that spectrum, there are those that would say that you have to go through Jesus Christ. You, you can't be saved apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he said it's an exclusive gospel. That you don't get to heaven if you're a Muslim. You don't get to heaven if you're a Hindu. You don't get to hev heaven practicing something else, but you have to be a follower of Jesus Christ if you're going to go to heaven. And, and as I read that, and he, and he created this, this idea and he coined the phrase, at least it, he was the first one I ever heard use it, he called it hopeful exclusivism. Where he said we're preaching an exclusive gospel, an exclusive message of salvation. But, he said if I get to heaven and there are people there who didn't believe like me, then I'll, I'll rejoice over that. So what I would tell you is this. He said, I adapted that and adopted it on, for my own. And it said, I, I preach an exclusive gospel because I can find it in the Scripture. That I'm not just making up what I think should be the case. I'm not just making up what I think other 
other people should follow, but I'm going to the Scripture. And it is a, an exclusive gospel. But if I get to heaven and there are other people there, if they didn't do it just like I see the Bible saying, then I'll rejoice with them. But I would tell you that the reality is this, that for now though, my responsibility is to preach an exclusive gospel because it is the Bible. And if you can find a way to take verse 16 and make it say something different, open but I don't think you can do that because the spirit had not yet fallen on any of them only they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus my prayer today is this is that if you have not received the spirit like they did in the book of Acts Today could be your day. And if you have received the Holy Spirit like they did in the book of Acts, like Peter and James and John and Thomas and Bartholomew and Paul and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and any other believer you want to find in the book of Acts, if you have, then live it and proclaim it everywhere that you go. Would you stand together? Father, I pray today that your word and your spirit would change and transform our hearts and lives. God, we don't want to preach or teach anything or believe anything that isn't true of your word your word is clear on your expectations and Lord where I started with this is that you are not a God who leaves us to blindly follow but you are a God who proves yourself and Lord maybe nothing is more important than you proving yourself with the initial evidence of the new birth we're filled with your spirit that we don't have to wonder we don't have to question we don't have to go and talk to people and ask them how do I know because we have an experience with you Lord we praise you because you are so good we praise you because your word is true and your word is lived out even in our day it's not as some would say that it was just for the first century and it's just for those those groups of people that first came to know you lord but it is still true today that you are still the god who heals you are still the god who delivers you're still the god who has all power you're still the god who saves you are still the god who fills us with your spirit lord and you do it in the same way 
you did it in Acts. We can put our trust, our faith, our hope in you, Jesus.